You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. We're glad to have you listening in and this is going to be an exciting day. And so before we get started with Pete Mecca and his guest, we're going to do our normal new thing, which is just stop a moment and... Um, if you go to our website, you'll see the J. Roy Ritchie Memorial Prayer Line, and we appreciate all the folks that have have and are participating in that by uh, sending us in uh, names of veterans that need prayers or a veteran sending in his name or her name that needs a prayer by veterans across the country. And it's uh, Veterans Praying for Veterans. And today I want to take just a minute. We'll just do one minute of silence and think about our veterans and also the people that are in D.C. right now representing the military and representing our country. And it's an important day, and I hope that everyone is safe and sound in D.C. and that it turns out to be the America that we all love and that uh, we grew up in and that it will be what we're proud of, America. So for just a minute, we'll pause and uh, take a break, and then we'll be back with Pete and his guest. God bless the USA. Thank you. And right now, let's turn it over to Pete Mecca, a veteran story, and uh, it's going to be a good one today. So, Pete, it's all yours. Thank you, David. Uh, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host on A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today is West Point graduate Fitz Corka. What a great last name. That's got to be Irish. <laughs> All right, Vince, my fellow Italian, uh, we're going to start this out like we always do with my veterans. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background and where you were born and raised. Yes, sir, Pete. Uh, hi, everybody. It's, it's such a joy to be here. I get to talk about America. I get to talk about the United States military. I have a friend and brother, Pete Mecca as my wingman to guide me through this so that you all derive maximum benefit. And Pete's right. If we don't know where we came from, it's hard to know who we are destined to be. So my grandmother, Maria Vita Corica, and her husband, Vincenzo Corica, left Sicily in 1921 come to America. Lots and lots of Italians did that. What was unique about Maria and and Vincenzo was that she was six months pregnant with my father when she got on that boat, 
never to see her family again, not knowing a word of English. That was an amazing display of courage, I think, on her behalf and on that of my namesake, Vincenzo. And, and therefore, she gave birth to my dad, who uh, one of the members of the greatest generation. He served in World War II three years in both the European theater and the Pacific theater. So what a remarkable series of role models I had growing up. I'm very proud of my Italian heritage. I am equally proud of my hometown, a little coal railroad and mining town in western Pennsylvania called Johnstown, J-O-H-N-S, Johnstown. Johnstown has been hit by three devastating floods over its history and came back every time. So I started life with the best possible opportunity to stay right. All right, very good. Uh, tell me a little bit about your family values, Vince. I had the same kind of upbringing, but, and we would go to uh, visit my Italian relatives in Pennsylvania, too. But a little bit of the values, uh, uh, work, religion, sure. so forth. Yeah, you you bet, Pete. I mean, you you bet. Values are everything, right? If you if you know your values, it's pretty easy to make decisions. That's that's your that's the north star. Your values. So my family valued America, right? They they risked everything coming to America. My family valued church and religion. Devout Roman Catholics. I was an altar boy. My family valued work. At one point, I had four jobs at the same time when I was in junior high school so that I could contribute to uh, the family cash flow. And, and loyalty, I would say, would be the overarching value most of all. Loyalty to each other, loyalty to family, loyalty to God, loyalty to country, which then gave birth, Pete, if I can just segue into... How West Point came to my future, may I? Sure. Yes, sir. Go right ahead. Okay, so you put all of those wonderful values into a pot, and what comes out in a young man is a feeling of what John F. Kennedy said, and someone said it before him, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But I, who didn't love John F. Kennedy of our generation, right? right. So, so immediately upon that value hitting me, I became convinced that my only path was that of the U.S. Army, and what better way to launch than to work my way into an appointment to West Point, which I did. I worked my way into an appointment at West Point. I I was I was not just a nerd, right? It back then it was not cool to be it was not cool to know math and science and physics and coding and stuff. People used to tease me and say, Vince, you're a nerd and I would say, <laughs> I resent that. I am not a nerd. I'm a super nerd. <laughs> I had uh, I I had a white pocket protector and my dad knew I needed to be a little more studly, so he got me a black one. And I had a, I had a girlfriend who was very patient with me in my nerdness. And uh, she said, if you don't take off that slide rule off of your belt, 
The pocket protector is bad enough. If you're going to wear a slide rule on your belt, I'm breaking up with you. So I didn't go that far. So, so there I was. I got into West Point. My dreams were starting to come true, Pete. All right. Okay. Uh, you graduated in 65. I know that. Uh, tell us when you arrived at West Point and uh, your first impression and describe your freshman year and uh, how many freshmen you lost that first year. Okay, Pete. Great. So, yes, I graduated from Johnstown Central High School, Johnstown Central High School, uh, on June 4th of 1965. On January 1st of 1965, I was standing tall at West Point getting my head shaved and getting, and getting uniforms handed to me and upperclassmen yelling at me. Uh, in those days, a young man, we were all men then. I'm happy to say that women were admitted to West Point in 1976. So the West Point class of 1980 had uh, a number of distinguished young women being commissioned. But we were all men then. So in those days, young men heading for West Point traveled alone. I got on the train. I got off at Grand Central Station. I went to the sign that said West Point. Uh, attendees here. I got, I got there, got on the bus, and upon hitting West Point, as I said, uh, upperclassmen shouting at you, do this, do this, do that. You knew that this wasn't Kansas anymore, Dorothy. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you what, Pete, this was all I ever wanted, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't that I resented that kind of, let's call it plebe hazing, as it was known in those days. Plebe was the West Point vernacular for freshmen. I wasn't disappointed in that. I read everything I could. I knew it was going to be like that. And I realized that in a way, this is going to sound corny, but I realized in a way this was the forge in which my backbone would be strengthened, the forge in which I would become the kind of leader that my men could count on. So I loved every minute of it. Uh, there were 1,100 of us that entered West Point on the, in the class of 1969. It's a four-year program. You graduate with a Bachelor of Science back then. Now there are many other degrees available. I'm happy that West Point has kept up with the times. So 1,100 of us showed up. 800 graduated four years later, so we lost 300 during that time. Of that 300, we lost probably 100 in the first year because it's not a match for everyone. The, the extreme distance, the extreme inability to do what you wanted, the requirement to follow orders and recognize that you're a part of something much bigger than you, so if you have a big ego, you better put it in your back pocket because the big ego is reserved for the big team, not for you as an individual. You're absolutely right about that. They break you down and build you back up. Right on. I think, exactly. I think it's a thing like a lot of young folks meet that these days. Now, I want you to explain to our listeners the five combat arms and why you chose the field that you did. Yeah, yeah, okay. <clears throat> So uh, West Point is, is, a, is a grand gift that the U.S. government gives to a man or woman who applies and goes there. It's a grand, grand gift. Guess what? To those to whom much is given, much is expected. So West Point graduates were required to do two things. One, 
was serve a minimum of five years on active duty in the U.S. Army after graduating as a second lieutenant. The second was to serve those five years in one of what were known as the five combat arms back in those days. So in 1965, Pete, although Vietnam was going on at that time, it was not a gigantic presence. It was not, it was not in the hearts and minds of many of us. But without giving myself too much credit, I knew that I was there to become a combat leader. So it was easy for me to pick the branch that I chose. The five choices were the, were the men and women and the armed forces who come the closest to the enemy. Infantry, armor, that's tanks, signal corps, communications, engineering, that's road building, mine clearing, bridge building, and then finally field artillery, cannons, uh, if, or howitzers, which I'll explain as we go on. All right. Why, why did you, yeah, and you chose artillery. Why did you choose artillery? Yeah. Well, artillery is, uh, is known as the king of battle. And who doesn't want to be a king? Infantry. <laughs> which, which are the men and women who take all the, uh, I shouldn't say all. They take most of the chances, close with and engage the enemy with small arms. Holy moly. They are the point of the spear. They're known as the queen of battle. Artillery is the king of battle. As in marriages and in most things, the king <laughs> obeys the queen. There so you I, go. I knew, I knew that if I could be engaged in the field artillery, I could protect dozens or even hundreds of infantry people by putting accurate fire in places that I could relieve them of any danger. So, uh, so uh, what I saw myself doing was being a leader servant. I saw myself serving the ground troops, be they infantry, be they armor, signal, engineer, it didn't matter. When they needed backup, field artillery was there to do that. I know a lot of that's, Army aviators feel the same way with gunships, but that's why I chose that branch, and I never regretted it. I felt like that's who I was meant to be. That's great, Vince. Uh, we're going to our first break, ladies and gentlemen. Stand by for a fascinating interview. We'll be right back with Vince Cork, a uh, great Irish guy. <laughs> great by. Irish guy. Hey. Hi, I'm hey. Lee Greenwood, and I am so proud that the Warriors for Hope group has asked me to host their first annual fundraising event to benefit St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen on January 28th. I'm looking forward to some very impressive people talking to us about social responsibility and the need to help worthy people with long-term physical or psychological issues. It's going to be a great show with a great cast, I promise. And hey, I might even sing. Go to Warriors for Hope website to register and donate to support our cause. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen. 
These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who have been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you at noon on January 28th. And I want to uh, also bring up the fact that if you if you live in Atlanta or you're coming to Atlanta, be sure and put on the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame as one of your stops. It's right across the street from the Capitol, and it's well worth the time that you spend there, be it a few hours or it can easily be a whole day reading about the heroes from Georgia that have helped keep us free, and you'll love the day that you spend there. So with that being said, you're listening to America's Web Radio, and let's get back to Pete and his guest, uh, good artillery man taking care of us 11 Bravos. So with that said, Pete, it's all yours. Come on, 11 Bravo, baby. <laughs> all right, we are back with Vince Corica, a uh, West Point graduate. Vince, you're out of uh, West Point. You get uh, graduated, <clears throat> and then <laughs> you end up at Fort Benning for jump school and ranger school. Tell us about the jump school and the red helmet. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I will do that. Before I tell you that story, though, I, I have 11 and a half grandchildren. Thank you, Lord God, Jesus. And Scarlett is five years old, and she was with me this weekend. And she said, Papa, what are you doing? I said, I'm preparing for a radio show. I'm going to meet some new friends in a few days, and I need to I need to study a little bit and, and get ready so I'm not nervous. And uh, she said, well, are you nervous? I said, well, no, I don't think so. So she said, well, look, Papa, don't try to be smart or funny. Just be yourself. You'll be okay. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do. Here. All right. Okay. So, so jump school. So as a regular Army officer coming out of West Point, we were required to attend Ranger School, good old U.S. Army Rangers, one of the most magnificent fighting forces on this planet ever. And uh, we were also offered the opportunity to go to jump school. So I wanted to be a part of the 82nd Airborne Division. I knew I was headed for Vietnam, and whenever those orders came through, that was okay with me. But if I could get into the 82nd Airborne Division first, that would that would be a wonderful assignment for me to learn everything I needed to know about leading troops and being a paratrooper and being a tab-wearing Army Ranger. So I went through those schools. Ranger and Airborne, and I reported into the 82nd Airborne Division. Now, even though I had nine jumps to my credit, I had to go through jump school twice. The first time I was injured, I had to go through a second time. So I had nine jumps. In the 82nd Airborne, if you are an officer on your first jump, you have to wear a red, a painted red helmet. It's so embarrassing. It's called your cherry jump. So, I, uh, you, know, you know, Pete, David, you know, any of you listeners who have had the honor of leading people, if, if you don't respect your team's love for you by teasing you, you're missing out on a lot. So I love the teasing, 
and I ate it up. I put on that red helmet and made my cherry jump with the 82nd. And then 16 months later, I, uh, I got my orders to report to Vietnam. So uh, on the 1st of July, 1971, I was standing in Vietnam. All right. Uh, where'd you go in Nam? What unit? Okay. All right. So, so here, here's the thing. I, a lot of men and women deployed to Vietnam with their unit, a National Guard unit, a reserve unit, an active duty unit would deploy in mass. And what a wonderful way to enter a war zone. In my case, uh, here we are. It's now 1971. The Paris Peace Accords were signed in January 1973. The America was entering what is known as the withdrawal phase of our involvement in the Vietnam War. So I didn't get to deploy with the unit. I deployed individually. I was a captain by then. Officers were being promoted. Combat arms officers in particular were being promoted pretty fast then. So regardless of your source of commissioning, you were a captain in two years after being commissioned as a second lieutenant. So I was already a captain. I had I had 16 months of airborne experience in the 82nd commanding troops in the field artillery. I was ready to go. Upon landing uh, in Vietnam on a commercial aircraft filled with other, uh, other we were all men then, uh, filled with other men, on their way to Vietnam, we were in the replacement depot, the repo depot, as it's called, in Long Bin, and I knew that I needed to be in the thick of it. I was driven to be in the thick of it. So I saw a really impressive-looking lieutenant colonel with field artillery cannons on his collar, and he looked to me like he was going to be in the thick of it. So I, I went over and introduced myself and said, sir... Uh, it would be an honor if I could serve in your unit. Uh, and he said, well, uh, I don't know you. Let's have a beer, and let's see whether <laughs> we would be a good match. Uh, we were. We, we were a good match. His name, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jack B. Keaton. Jack Keaton was unique in that he was, he was both an Army aviator and a field artillery officer. So as a lieutenant colonel, he flew Army helicopters as, as an aviator, and now he was going to command the 1st Battalion of the 21st Field Artillery, which was serving the 3rd Brigade of the 1st Cavalry Division in the Benoit area of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. A lot of people might call that the Three Corps area. So, boy, my wishes are coming true, man. Uh, field Artillery, 16 months in the 82nd Airborne Division, I have a mentor and a hero that that agreed to let me work with him on the first day I got there. So I followed him to uh, his battalion fire base, and that's when my three major assignments began. All right. Uh, for the listeners, tell us what composes of a field artillery battalion. Sure, sure. Okay. So, so uh, if I may, I'm going to start with the battery and then climb up. So okay, the order sure. of that. Sure, sure. The order of battle, if you will, is gun crew. Uh, there are in the 105 millimeter, 105 millimeter, we call it. The gun crew has a 105 millimeter howitzer, and there are between five to seven cannoneers on that gun. 
a battery is six of those guns and six of those gun crews. That's called an artillery battery. That is commanded by a captain, typically. It's much like an infantry company uh, and so on. Uh, then you have the field artillery battalion, which is, depending upon the organization, as many as three or perhaps four field artillery batteries in the field artillery battalion. And then there are three or four battalions in what is known as the division artillery. That, at that time, anyway, the Army has gone through many different fascinating organizational ideals and changes since then. But at that time, Pete, that's how we were organized. All right. Very good. Um, tell us about your first three months there. Okay. So, I, you know, Pete, I, I didn't get it. When I say that, I know that sounds odd, but I knew I was there in Vietnam to do a job. I didn't see the big picture of what the right progression of those jobs would be. But I got really lucky. Uh, let me overview first, and then I'll take each one one at a time. Uh, the first job that I had for three months was that of assistant operations officer. I'll come back to that. Then the next job I had for four months was flying in the back seat of a Huey helicopter uh, with an infantry lieutenant colonel whom I was supporting with artillery fire support. And then my last four months was as a, was as a battery commander. So back to your question, my first job was as the assistant S3, uh, S standing for staff, assistant S3, for operations, and during those three months, sometimes 24 hours a day, my colleagues and I in the Tactical Operations Center of Jack B. Keaton's battalion planned fire missions. We, we planned missions to harass and interdict the enemy, meaning at, at no known interval, at no known place, we would blow up a crossroads somewhere in the jungle so that the enemy didn't feel like they had freedom to roam about. We would certainly fire missions designed to protect our boys as they went into a hostile landing zone. We call them LZs. And the Vietnam War was characterized, as we all know from the coverage, by, by the use of helicopters, by significant, significant use of helicopters to move men and equipment into battle. Well, guess what? Before you want to put infantry on the ground in a landing zone, you've got to, you've got to soften that landing zone. We, we know it from World War II movies as softening the beaches when we think about D-Day or any other amphibious landing. In Vietnam, it was, it was soften the landing zone. So what I did for three months uh, as, a, as an assistant operations officer was plan operations like that, recognizing in, in the palm of my hand I had the opportunity to make our boys safer as they landed into unknown landing zones. Wow. All right. Very, very important. We are going to get to your next four months in just a minute because that's one of the one of your – I know a job that you love flying in that chopper and everything. Yeah, during man. Your first, yeah, during your first three months, did you, uh, did you have to go out on the wire any at all? No, no, I, I, I did not. We were on a fire base. We were not in an air-conditioned building. No disrespect to men and women who were. Everybody served. We were on a fire base. We occasionally took rocket attacks. 
mortar attacks. But my job was to be in that bunker protecting the boys out there in the jungle. So I never had I never had to don my flak vest as I did for my other uh, eight months. I wore my flak vest and steel pot a lot. But in those three months, I was in a bunker controlling fire support to our infantry as they went into landing zones. All right, very good. All right, we are going to our second break, uh, folks, and we'll be right back with um, West Point graduate Vince Corka. Vince, stand by for just a few minutes. Yes, sir. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who have been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you at noon on January 28th. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with uh, West Point graduate Vince Corica. Uh, Vince, tell the folks about your, after the first three months, you spent four months doing something that you absolutely love. Tell the folks about it. Yeah, I did, Pete. Thank you. Thanks. That's exactly the way to introduce that topic. So for a field artillery officer, the, the most exciting opportunities to execute your skills lie in two areas. One is battery command, of course, a sacred responsibility for the safety of the men and women under your command. The second goes by many names. Uh, it, It is defined as field artillery liaison officer. We abbreviated it back in those days as LNO, LNO. And what I got to do was every day and some nights for four months, I got in the back seat of a Huey helicopter, a command and control helicopter, those large helicopters, folks, that we see in all of the newsreels and movies and TV shows about Vietnam. Got in the back seat of a Huey helicopter with an infantry lieutenant colonel, and my responsibility was to provide him with instantaneous fire support for his troops on the ground. So here's how it worked. Every morning, we would get into the back seat of his command and control helicopter. We weren't we weren't aviators. We were there in a command and control scenario. He was on his infantry radio net talking to his commanders, 
and the Infantry Higher Command up at 3rd Brigade level for the 1st Cav. I was on my artillery radio net coordinating fire support. We'd get up in the air and we would spend all day overflying the area of operations where his troops were engaged in whatever their operations were, reconnaissance, whatever it was, we, we were overflying them so that those boys, those men on the ground knew that they weren't alone. They knew that above them, they had their infantry battalion commander. His name, by the way, was Lieutenant Colonel Charles Hodges, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Hodges, an amazing, amazing figure of a man. Uh, Charlie Hodges was 6'4 or 6'5. We never knew how he got that that gigantic body into the back seat <laughs> of the Huey, but he did, and uh, and he was magnificent. He he said he was a wonderful Southern guy. He said, "Boy, your job <laughs> is to protect my men on the ground. I want you to know where they are at all times, and I want you to know how to bring in fire support." So that's what I did, and and for four months we that's what we did. We overflew his area of operations and his troops. We had uh, we had three values. One was protect his boys and let them know they weren't alone. Two was ensure that our fire support was accurate and absolutely positively did not harm any of his troops. And three was to be available to rescue any helicopter crews who were shot down uh, because no man is left behind. Everybody knows that. Every responder knows that. But those were his three values, and that's what we did for four months. I felt like an artillery gunslinger. I had access <laughs> to every single kind of artillery weapon. I had access to Cobra gunships. I had access to naval gunfire offshore. I even had access to Air Force bombers if needed. Anything I needed I would coordinate back with, oddly enough, I would coordinate back with the same guy I used to be as an assistant S3 for operations. And he would uh, would connect all the dots for me and provide me the fire support that we needed. Wow. Wow. Did you ever try to reach out and grab one of those green tracers? <laughs> okay. So, so uh, as, as helicopter crew in Vietnam... Uh, we would fly at a significantly high level, right? But not so high that, that we looked like cowards. So yeah, we, we, uh, the boys on the ground needed to hear us up there somewhere. They're in triple canopy jungle. They can't see us, but they needed to hear those chopper blades. So yes, indeed, those green tracers would zip by our ship every once in a while, particularly at night. And uh, our, our joke was that if you were going to fly in a command and control helicopter, you needed two flak vests. You were going to wear one, and you were going to sit on one. And that's absolutely <laughs> what I did. <laughs> well, gee, Vince, why were you sitting on the flak vest? <laughs> uh, one of my best buddies in high school uh, became a chopper pilot, and uh, that flak vest he was sitting on did not help him. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, okay. Let's go to your. We'll get to some combat in just a minute. But your final four months in Nam. Um, tell me about those real quick. Yeah. Okay. So, 
So I, I love Lieutenant Colonel Jack B. Keaton. He was my mentor. He was my artillery godfather. I love Lieutenant Colonel Charlie Hodges. He was my infantry battalion commander that I supported. I loved him. I knew he was getting short. I knew his tour was ending soon. And I was worried about that because I knew I could not fall in love with any other commander like I had fallen in love with him. He was remarkable. And uh, as uh, as he was getting very, very short, he said to me, uh, Captain Koreka, I have good news for you. You're not going to have to learn to fly with anybody else. I know you have enjoyed flying with me. You won't have to fly with anybody else. And I thought, well, yeah, but I love this job. I love what? <laughs> what? He said, I have arranged for you to command Bravo Battery, B Battery, the first of the of the first of the twenty first artillery, Jack Keaton's battalion. I was now returning to the wing of Lieutenant Colonel Jack B. Keaton. Charlie Hodges had successfully completed his second tour in Vietnam. A courageous commander of the first of the seventh infantry, uh, part of the third brigade separate task force. By the way, the third brigade uh, in in mass returned to Fort Hood early uh, in 1971, but the 3rd Brigade separate what remained behind and was reinforced with a number of other units. So a lot of people say, wait a minute, the 3rd Brigade wasn't still there in uh, late 71 and 72. Uh, the 3rd Brigade was. So off he went and off I went. His last day as my supported infantry lieutenant commander was my first day commanding my battery, B Battery, 1st of the 21st Artillery. Tell us about that battery. Okay, so so uh, roughly 70 men. It could have been as many as 100, but roughly 70. Six 105-millimeter howitzers, as I mentioned. Uh, a 105-millimeter howitzer can fire a projectile roughly 7 miles. The projectile weighs about 33 pounds. It's about 31 inches long, tip to base. And its kill radius is roughly 30 meters, so roughly 32 yards kill radius. And the triple canopy jungle, our calculations had to bring that down to about half because a lot of those rounds would go off at the treetops when we were designed to to uh, avoid the enemy, to, to eliminate the enemy at ground level. So that's who we were, six 105-millimeter howitzers. Out in the middle of nowhere on our own fire base, the U.S. Army engineers cleared an area for us, and we landed our six howitzers on that fire base and began to set up our position. I promised my men on my first day there that everybody goes home. By that time, I knew how to make a fire base as safe as it could be. I, I had those 16 months in the 82nd Airborne. I now had seven very progressive and effective months in Vietnam. I knew how to keep a fire base separate. So I said, all of you are going home without a scratch. But I will tell you what we won't have here. We're not going to have drugs. And if any of you can't stand getting yourself off of drugs during the time that I'm your commander, raise your hand. So three guys raised their hands. <laughs> so, so the first sergeant, 
dismissed them from from the formation, and that's the last I ever saw of them. So so <laughs> we, we fired in the day, we fired in the night. Our uh, we we had a wonderful joint value that was protect the infantry. It didn't mean we weren't proud of what we did. But it did mean that we knew why we were there. There was never any question about why we were doing that. So we improved our position every day. We filled more and more sandbags. We dug deeper and deeper foxholes. We put out more and more concertina wire and claymore mines. And, and we established uh, mutually protecting fire patterns with our sister batteries. My men were going to be as protected as they could be, and I had a wonderful group of first and second lieutenants and senior and junior non-commissioned officers. And uh, on my last day there, when Lieutenant Colonel Jack Keaton pinned a number of decorations on my chest, I was moved to tears by the decorations because nobody told me I was being submitted for those. I was moved to tears. Uh, on my last day there, but I kept my promise to my men. Everybody on the day that I left there, nobody had gotten hurt, and I stayed in touch with the gentleman who took over after I left, and in fact, uh, he kept that same promise. As I said earlier, the peace accords were signed in January of 1973. I left Vietnam roughly on Memorial Day 1972, so that's only six or seven more months before before the ceasefire was signed. So we all knew that we were in the withdrawal phase, but men were dying every day all over Vietnam. Men were dying in our area of operations, so we never once let our guard down, Pete. Yeah, I can understand that. I want to go back just a minute, uh, Vince, to uh, when you were flying with Colonel, uh, who was Colonel Hodges. Uh, yeah. Describe, describe your first time in combat. Um, oh, okay. You made some so, interesting comments about it. Go ahead. Yeah, 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 no question. So, uh, as I as I said, our job, my job in particular, comprised keeping his boys safe. So uh, we were going into an unknown area of operations, into an unknown landing zone, uh, and what what I arranged for was a massive bombardment of the LZ of the landing zone before his company, his infantry company. At, at that point, it was maybe sixty. Men, it probably took about 10 sorties on a Huey to land that many men on the landing zone. Uh, immediately upon getting to the landing zone, things were quiet because I had bombarded that landing zone with the help of a number of artillery batteries in our area of operation. Upon getting to the landing zone, things were quiet. We thought they were in the clear. The minute they got into the tree line, they began to take fire. And... So now, now we lowered our orbit. We got much, much closer to the ground. We really wanted our boys to hear those chopper blades above the sound of gunfire around them. And Colonel Hodges brought in a, uh, a pink team. A pink team was composed of a white bird, which is a little bitty observation bird. We see them as traffic choppers today. They look like tadpoles with wings. <laughs> and one or two Cobra gunships. Those were called the Red Birds. The White Bird to observe, the Red Bird to kill, red and white, pink. He brought one of those teams in because now that little bird could flit around and really see where the enemy was. They would drop smoke 
If they saw a bunker, they would drop smoke. If they saw a machine gun emplacement, I would see that smoke. The Cobra gunships would see that smoke, and we would obliterate the origin of that smoke. During that, during that engagement, and by the way, time, time just flies. You, you have you, everyone who's has been in battle. And by the way, I don't think I, I did anything unique. I'm just telling you my experience, though, and what it felt like. Uh, during that battle, the observation... Hey, Vince, I'll tell you what, Vince, excuse me, excuse me. We're going yeah. to our last break, and then we're going to come right back to where we're leaving off. Do okay, I, folks, I this is our last break. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Hi, I'm Lee Greenwood, and I am so proud that the Warriors for Hope group has asked me to host their first annual fundraising event to benefit St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen on January 28th. I'm looking forward to some very impressive people talking to us about social responsibility and the need to help worthy people with long-term physical or psychological issues. It's going to be a great show with a great cast, I promise. And hey, I might even sing. Go to Warriors for Hope website to register and donate to support our cause. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we are with uh, West Point graduate Vince Cork. Uh, Vince, go ahead and finish your story about your first time in combat. Yes, sir. Okay, so as I said, our, our white bird went down. Uh, neither neither the pilot nor the observer were injured, uh, nor were they wounded, but the bird went down. The bird was inoperable. We were going to land and pick them up. No man left behind. But we had to stay on station so I could continue adjusting artillery and, and to adjust the fire of the gunship. So another bird, another helicopter that was nearby, picked up those men, and we were all so very relieved about that. Later on in my tour with Colonel Hodges, we did land and pick up the crew of a white bird, of an observation bird, because that was such a wonderful tactic. So on that day, I felt like I arrived. I cut my teeth on what my job was all about. And I will never, I will never forget that day uh, because, because Colonel Hodges was so calm. I, I found myself calm, and we got to speak with the infantry company commander later. His, his troops got out of there without any KIAs, a few killed in actions. A few of his men were wounded. We got to talk to him later, and he said, I'll tell you, sir, hearing those chopper blades up there gave my men and me courage knowing we would be okay so that that's my story you uh i think you mentioned to me that you never felt fear in combat can you explain that yes uh, again not trying to sound brave please everybody i am uh, if i sound proud and excited i am i'm proud and excited about about the mechanism that put me into this position. I'm proud and excited about Johnstown, PA, about West Point, about the 82nd Airborne, about the artillery schools, about the 1st Cavalry Division. So I'm very proud. I'm very excited. But I didn't think I was going to come home. My best friend, Captain Paul C. Sautel, 
Uh, I went to Ranger School. I am a Ranger tab wearing Ranger qualified person. But Paul was a Ranger. He was in L Company, Lima Company, 75th Rangers. He was killed in battle, leading his Rangers into a battle with a larger force of North Vietnam regular troops. He was killed in battle. I was losing. I was losing West Point classmates killed in battle. I didn't expect to come home. I never told my mother that. I didn't expect to come home. I don't mean to sound brave. I'm just saying that's what I felt like. Because I didn't expect to come home, I never felt fear. All I wanted to do was was perform the mission that I felt I was put into the U.S. Army to do, which was protect the ground troops. So I never felt fear, but not out of bravery just out of what I felt was a destiny. Well said, sir. Very well said. Uh, Vince, you were in artillery uh, most of your career. How is your hearing, Vince? <laughs> What's that, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I got to tell, because I'm a hearing aid wearer, I can tell this joke. <laughs> so my, my dad was a member of the greatest generation. He only, my dad only had one joke. Nicholas C. Corica only had one joke. This was back in the days when hearing aids were one, uh, one wire goes from the ear into a battery pack about the size of a small pack of cigarettes. So two old guys are sitting on a park bench, and, and the one guy says, I'm so excited, I really love this new hearing aid of mine. And the other guy says, really, what kind is it? And the first guy says, about half past ten. <laughs> so so thanks thanks to the VA I have a pair of $6000 hearing aids. Uh, and they significantly improve my ability to hear and uh, to function and uh, I can't I can't say enough about the VA. Uh, I I've, I've had I know a lot of men and women do not have the same story. But I can't say enough about them and the way I've been treated there and the way they have tended to to my hearing, Pete. So my hearing's yeah. a little better now, Pete. I heard that. I, I have not complained about my treatment at the VA either, uh, Vince. What uh, <clears throat> Now, in, in our modern forces, don't the artillerymen have some kind of ear protection? Oh, hey, man, we had ear protection. But the, the, reason, the reason young men and women go to war is we think we're made out of steel. I had, I had all kinds of earplugs. We were issued earplugs. They were in a little tiny plastic container about the size of your thumb. It had, it had an interlocking chain on it. You could put it through any one of your buttonholes, anywhere on your load-bearing equipment, on your web gear. I had I had he, he, uh, hearing protection, but it wasn't manly to wear those to wear those <laughs> or, bright orange international orange earplugs. So I didn't wear them. My own fault, self-inflicted. <laughs> All right, uh, you had a, a what I would say a great tour of Vietnam. I, I know that my two and a half years there, I remember them every day and everything. But I look back much as you do with pride of knowing we did the best we could in an almost yeah. impossible situation. Uh, yeah. When you uh, left Nam, very interesting story, you ended up at the Panama Canal Zone and uh, yeah. met somebody down there. Tell me a little bit about the Panama Canal Zone. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was so excited after commanding a battery in combat in Vietnam and attending uh, one or more schools. Uh, I was then assigned to command a 105-millimeter howitzer battery in the Panama Canal Zone. So I went from one command assignment to another command assignment, absolutely in heaven. Uh, My tour of duty was going to be 18 months in the Panama Canal Zone. I was very excited about that. A few days after I got there, a friend of mine showed me a picture of a young woman from Mississippi who was visiting the Panama Canal Zone to see her college roommate and her roommate's husband, who was an officer in the Army on the same post as I with my battery. So I called the quarters and asked if I could come see her, and I did. Uh, she, <laughs> she blew me away. I was hit by the lightning bolt, as we Sicilians say. And uh, I proposed to her, and she accepted on the third date. I'll say that Holy again. Holy cow. I proposed to her, and she accepted on the third date. We were in our mid-20s. We weren't kids anymore. And uh, she said yes. And the first thing her parents said and the first thing my parents said was, what? You're doing what? <laughs> but uh, we celebrated our 47th anniversary uh, in, this, in this past December. Our first child was born one year after our marriage, and my Panama assignment was then extended to three years because it was now an accompanied tour. And uh-huh. as my family continued to grow. Our next assignment was to, after three years there, our next assignment was to the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell. Uh, By that time, our second child had been born, and I realized that while the Army was good to me, and I was good to it, that my days in the Army needed to come to an end so that I could be with my family. Ironically, uh, I made that decision when my next assignment orders arrived in my hands from Fort Campbell, which were going to be which were going to be assigning me to South Korea for eight, an 18-month unaccompanied tour. It would have been a great assignment. If I, if I had wanted a career in the Army, it would have been absolutely magnificent, but that wasn't what I wanted. So after nine years, I, uh, I resigned my commission to begin a civilian career. The West Point uh, requirement, as I said earlier, was five years active service in one of the those five combat armed branches. I was obligated to serve five. I served nine. The Army was good to me, and I was good to it. And I've said it many times. I'll say it again now, that other than my wife and my family, those four years at West Point and those nine years in the U.S. Army as an officer are the most incredibly indelible accomplishments of my life. I had a great civilian career, made a lot of friends, grew a lot of careers of people around me, helped our clients as best we humanly could. It was wonderful. But for me, wife, family, those 13 years, that's my indelible accomplishment in my life. Honor, duty, country. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, real quickly, Vince, what in the heck were you shooting at down the Panama Canal Zone? <laughs> well, uh, the uh, the Panama Canal Zone is fifty square miles. But the canals is the canal is in the center of that, of course. 
and the U.S. forces back in 1972, 73, when I reported there, were responsible for the security of the Panama Canal. So there was a wonderful infantry brigade there, the 193rd Infantry Brigade, and there was one artillery battery assigned to support that infantry brigade. Typically, that would take a battalion of field artillery, but because of the smallness of the territory, it was just one artillery battery. So we had fire missions plotted to protect the canal the canal and support the 193rd Infantry Brigade if they needed to deploy to protect the canal. Okay. But didn't I, we, we, I, I never fired, whereas I fired rounds in anger every day in all three of my jobs in Vietnam, we, we fired, I fired artillery shots in anger, as the expression goes, every day in Vietnam. We fired no shots in anger in the Panama Canal Zone, but we practiced <laughs> a lot. <laughs> All right, very good. Uh, we're quickly running out of time, Vince. Fascinating interview, but I want to ask you this, and I think it's almost a silly question to ask you, but I always ask my veterans this. Would you recommend the military for a young person? Absolutely, I would if, this is the big if, if they feel it in their heart. If you don't feel it in your heart, it's the most savage way to be ripped out by the roots <laughs> from people who love you. If you feel it in your heart, you recognize that you're on a path, and if you need to be on that path, if your heart says you need to be there, what a wonderful way to get there. It's not perfect, but it it is right for so many of us, and it was right for me. Very good. And... Uh... Wrapping it up here, Vince, you were recently elected as the president of the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association. Tell the folks about that organization. Yeah, thank you, Pete. So, everybody, Pete Mecca is, is a distinguished member of the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association. We have a wonderful, I know we're getting close to time, we have a wonderful newly renovated website at avvba.com, alpha, victor, victor, bravo, alpha, dot org, excuse me, avvba.org, avvba.org. Wonderful website. You'll see so many community go. involvement things that we've done, supporting the USO, marching on Veterans Day parades, providing memorials around the Atlanta area for Atlanta men who were killed in combat Pete, we gotta go. in Vietnam. We have published a 600-page book uh, containing uh, over 160 stories written by our members in the Atlanta-Vietnam Veterans Business Association. It was published in 2019. And why am I, why am I talking about that book? I'm talking about it. Because that book, which is titled I'm Ready to Talk, is all about the experiences. We have 261 members currently in the ABBBA. Um, Got to go, Pete. Over 115 of us put our stories in that book, including two from me and one from Pete Mecca. It, it's our way of paying tribute to the men and women who didn't make it home and talking about what our experiences were like. Thanks, Pete. Yes, sir. Thank you. Vince, outstanding interview. Uh, thank you so much, uh, my fellow brother, for your service and what you've done for your country. Um, we Italians stick together, Vince. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.